Welcome to the third episode of the Best of Davis podcast. My name is Akar Sethi. I'm a student here at UC Davis studying animal science and film. This week, we're joined by a dedicated and passionate veterinarian, Dr. Carl Jandry. Dr. Jandry is the Associate Dean and a professor of the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. Today, we will learn about what makes UC Davis the best vet school, its increased focus on mental health, Dr. Jandry's career, and his advice to students. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jandry. How are you doing today? It's my pleasure. I'm feeling great. It's a great day. It is a great day. So let's get right into it. UC Davis is ranked the best on planet Earth. Why does it hold this title? It's a great question. And it's funny that you have me on the Best of Davis podcast because I may not even be the best. Like I can tell you that to be highly ranked, there's a reason that the world looks upon you as an expert. And they probably elevate you to that level of the best or the brightest or the number one because of a, not just something you do, but a history of what you do and the history of what we do as a school, because it's a school, it's a whole community, is consistently get people that are passionate, excited for, and driven to make the world better for people and their animals. And the, the kudos, I think, really probably go out to the administrative structure to support those individual students, faculty, and staff members to their level of success. And if you put amazing people in a room together and get them creative and get them going, uh, just create something that allows them to be successful, the structure that the administrative structure, the facilities, the funding, all that stuff, amazing things can happen if you just get out of the way. So I would have to say that it's not an individual person because you can individually select so many of my faculty members, my colleagues, and my administrative colleagues as well that have just done amazing things and will continue to elevate our team to be as successful as possible. And I think currently we're number one in the country according to the US News and World Report. I think currently we might be number two in the world based on QS rankings, but we're always in the top one or two on QS. We have been number one on the planet. Currently, I guess officially we're number two on the planet. But if you want to call us number one in the universe, that's fine with me. I think we are. I think we're surrounded by amazing people. And I'm still amazed by the, my colleagues that I get to interact with every day. They are the cats meow. They're the upper echelon of their, their fields. And I'm really proud to work here with them. Thank you. What is it doing to continue being the best at educating students? Well, that's a tough one because as a veterinary educator, as well as administrator, as well as a veterinarian who takes care of animals, I wear three big hats and the educational hat is one that I do a little less of anymore in the classic curriculum. I don't do as much lecturing and I still do some supportive work in uh, team-based learning and laboratories, but my educational focus really is the clinic. When I'm in the hospital taking care of animals in the emergency room or the intensive care unit, because that's my area of specialty. I'm there training interns, residents, and final year veterinary students. And we get first and second year students come in on certain days as part of their curriculum as well. So a lot of the educational focus of mine is patient-side teaching. It's, it's, it's my, what I would consider, I'm a content expert in veterinary small animal emergency and critical care. I've never been trained as a educator, which is kind of funny because you're at, academic institution and you're training the next generation, but I don't actually have really solid formal training in education. I have formal training in content expertise. But what's really cool is all those amazing people I talked about, why we're number one, these people are so content expertise oriented. It just is amazing how the language flows from them in such a clear way that is so easy for them to educate the next generation. It's quite cool. And I've had some amazing mentors who have taught me techniques that have been, like I said, not formal education in mentoring and, and education, but definitely how to extract information from people in a supportive and, and enthusiastic environment. And um, I think that's what we are doing here at the school. We do learn, 
many, many years of learning. And I've been at the university now over 20 years learning, and I'm still learning tips and tricks. But our educational system here with our associate dean for professional education is also creating ideas and tricks and modules for our faculty to continue to learn some of the pedagogy of education. So it doesn't stop with just content expertise or delivering care to animals and their owners. It's how do we deliver our information best to our adult learners and how do they best receive it? So it's a mix. It's kind of ever evolving too. Our curriculum has been in the books now in the version that it's currently in for about nine years, maybe 10. And it's very flexible so that it can be adjusted every so often as the needs of the student, as the educator, and as the profession and the information dictates. So it is not the same as it was 10 years ago but it's structurally similar, but has made subtle shifts in its course. And also along with that comes new modules for teaching, new ways to teach, new tools. Virtual reality is gonna really be taken up in the next two to five years for how to teach veterinarians. It's already been started. So that's another way we're gonna keep on top of the educational side of being the best. So you said something that I'm curious about. There's a veterinary school near Diamond Bar in SoCal. I don't know if you're familiar with, Western yeah. University of Health Sciences. Right. And they were talking about their approach to teaching, which was putting students in a group environment and having them solve a problem. It was almost similar to the approach used in medical schools. Yes, this is uh, called problem-based learning. And Western's been around for a while and that's been their model and that's how they usually teach. We do what I would call a hybrid of that. We have some classic didactic lectures. We have lots of laboratories. We have lots of problem-based case-based and team-based learning modules where it's true, small groups between six and eight students in general, we get together with a facilitator, a problem is presented, and then everyone works on different portions of that problem, reconvenes, takes it to the next level, they're throwing new data, take it to the next level after reconvening and going off on your separate ways. Like it's an iterative process to put a, what we would call a learner-centered curriculum as opposed to a faculty-centered curriculum. We put the uh, ownership of the material in the students' hand, we foster the development of that information, refine it, squeeze it, push it, lead from behind in essence, so that the students own the information grab and acquisition, and therefore they'll hang on to it longer. Some schools had gone all problem-based and have actually stopped that for different reasons. But this is part of the educational aspects of higher education and veterinary medicine. There are a lot of, you know, a lot of places still stuck in the standard old faculty center, just listen to me lecture, you memorize everything and let's move on. Most vet schools are taking more of a modified approach as opposed to being full on 100% problem based. But there's a mix of all of that going on in veterinary medicine. And depending on the style of the learner, if you're applying to vet school, you can pick and choose which style of curriculum you like. And when you're going to investigate those veterinary schools, I think you should ask, how is the curriculum delivered? What kind of curriculum is it? All problem-based, hybrid, not problem-based at all. And then, you know, you're in the driver's seat. You can ask these questions and they know what they do. You just have to ask them if it's not clear on their websites. Thank you. And now I know you mentioned virtual reality. But what role does artificial intelligence have in the future of animal healthcare? That's very interesting. You should ask that question because one, I know something about it, but two, I do not do any of it because I am not a data scientist and I don't have that creativity. However, we do have these rock stars on our faculty who are looking into and have done studies on artificial intelligence and how that may or may not roll. For one example, how do we take all of these data put them into a system where, you know, everything starts to look very suspicious if A, B, and C all fall in line. Well, it's, medicine is definitely not that simple. It's more like A through Z have to fall in line and all the integers from one to hundred have to be in order for this disease to be 95% likely. So these big data sets can create algorithms to start predicting what is the chance of likelihood for this condition to exist if all of these data points direct you to it? So I like to make the analogy of a constellation. 
You know what the constellation looks like because it's the shape and the arrangement that you've been told, but you probably don't know the individual names of those stars. Flip that around. We know the individual names of the stars and we get all that data from our studies. The AI algorithm may kick out and say, this looks like that constellation. It might look like that disease. So your next best step and your best financial investment could be that. So I think AI has a role in helping us finally look at and clearly see patterns. However, I don't think it's ever going to take the creativity and the subtle expertise out of being a healthcare provider. So I think that's fascinating. And I think there's a really good role for this. Of course, all good things can't be abused. What does the Aunt, Aunt May say to Spider-Man? With all power comes great responsibility. Something, something like, like that. that. Or was it, was it Uncle Ben? I think they both said it. Oh. Depends on which movie you were watching. With great power comes great responsibility. So anyway. I want to get back to the AI thing. Right. Because, um, there are other ways that are, they're employing AI in things like radiology and in clinical pathology. Again, it's pattern recognition. It's training a computer to recognize things and how they relate to each other. And of course, the big stuff is going to be easy at first and you're going to get it refined. And so sooner or later, you can drill down to the subtleties where it's going to be more important and where I think a living brain can help pick out those subtleties, especially a specialist who has been there before when things are confusing and say, oh, you know, in the past when I've done this, I realized that that was the right choice, not that one, because of this minor subtlety that is hard to explain because it's so subtle. But they're working on ways that radiology can be somewhat AI and uh, clinical pathology too. People can scan in their microscope slides, send them up to a, a program that an algorithm that spits out and says, this is a red blood cell, that's a platelet, that's a neutrophil. This is a very unusual cell with a high nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio. We're suspicious that that's cancer. And that pops that cell into a leukemia algorithm and says, is this chronic lymphocytic leukemia? Acute lymphocytic leukemia? Is it myelogenous? Like it just starts popping all these things in the algorithms that have to be trained. So I think that there's future in that. I think that it's not far off. I just think people that are working on it now are realizing that it is a growing idea and a lot of data has to be used and a lot of training has to be put into that. So it's going to be a balance and a partnership between veterinarians, veterinary establishments that have big data sets like ours, data scientists, even probably artists who can actually help the visual aspects of the subtleties between this cell and that cell or that color and that color. Like what if you have a really badly stained blood smear on a microscope slide? The reds and the blues don't look so good anymore. The artist might have to say, well, no, that's that hue actually relates to a red blood cell in this bad stained slide, as opposed to kicking it out altogether. They're going to have to learn how to filter it so that they optimize their uh, colors, because it's so important when you're doing clinical pathology to see what the colors of the staining has done to the cell. So I think it's a wide open field. I'm glad I'm not that smart, but I'm glad people are working on it. It's pretty important. That is exciting. I think that connects to my next question, which is, how is UC Davis that preparing students for veterinary telemedicine? Great question. We do have some legal obligation to have a veterinary client patient relationship. So a veterinarian has to examine an animal and has to talk to that animal owner known as the client. For that, we create a medical record and then all of the things that we're allowed to do as veterinarians, prescribe medications, offer tests, correct a medical record, that all falls out. Telemedicine then can be employed for things like rechecks, touch-ins, you know, little point rechecks are probably the best place to have that done as opposed to as an emergency critical care specialist. I'm sorry, but I have to have your animal in front of me to do an exam, to create an idea of what's going on. What I do cannot be done by telemedicine. 
I don't think ever, unless I want a brief update. How is, how's your pet doing since I saw you four or five days ago? Just a phone check-in. That's not an appointment. It's not a way to monetize a veterinary experience. But what I think our students are now seeing, back to your question, sorry about the long prelude, our students are now seeing that the pandemic has put a lot of what we do, not necessarily online or on Zoom, but we do a lot of telemedicine being phone calls and touch points that are all based on distance. So what we're doing is adjusting to the pandemic and we're just in it and the students are seeing us do it. So that's one way that they're actually seeing that there's a way to not always have a big hospital with a lot of exam rooms, but as long as you have a big parking lot where people can wait in that parking lot with their animal or in a park with a phone call access, you can have their animal in your hospital while you connect with them while they're going about their business. Maybe they're going to be running errands and they're not just waiting in your waiting room. So they might make the clients more efficient and there might be more drop-off appointments. And certain veterinary industries may be easy at this, like general medicine, you know, drop off your animal on your way to work. Your vet calls you and talks about things Maybe there's some vaccines, maybe some blood tests, and then you pick the animal up later. That's not perfect telemedicine, but it's a way that you can blend the old style, having the client in the waiting room, then have them come into your exam room, and then do everything in very person. And that is somewhat sometimes time consuming. You might become more efficient doing it in a different format, but we don't have a training module and a telemedicine platform. We've talked about it, we've looked at it, but we just haven't found that to be a prioritization yet for the school. One of our services and one of our faculty members has been really doing telemedicine for probably 20 years, at least. He's the world's leading expert on hemodialysis and blood purification techniques. His name is Larry Calgill, and he runs our dialysis unit here in Davis and the one we have at a satellite in San Diego. And because there's the two places, San Diego and Davis, Larry's on telemedicine all the time. He was the first faculty member I ever saw have Google glasses, which didn't really go live to market. But the idea and the concept of here's what I'm looking at, you can see it too, because there's a little camera in my glasses, really, really pretty cool. And in doing so, he's created an academy of people that are like-minded in hemodialysis and blood purification techniques. He trains people all over the world using that technique. And with his telemedicine cameras and speakers in our dialysis unit here, he pulls them in to that room, no matter where they are, what time of day they're at. He says, we're going to be treating an animal. It's going to go live. Join in. We'll talk you through it. We can show you what we're doing. And that's not delivery of animal care to an animal owner, but it's telemedicine for educational purposes where he is pulling anybody interested in so that the science and the art of blood purification techniques and any extracorporeal treatment like hemodialysis can be done by anyone around the world. So that's the growth in that industry 100% is on his shoulders because he's the godfather of it. And he's primarily used telemedicine techniques to connect with people all over the world to transmit that information. So we'll move on to a, a um different direction. It's still something that makes UC Davis great. How has mental health stigma been a focus? Well, that's a great question. And I would have to say that stigma here is a thing of the past. We've had our counseling service, I think it's been up and running for eight or nine years, specific to veterinary students. We have one and a half full-time equivalents of mental health counselors. So one full-time, 100% time is a clinical psychologist, PhD clinical psychologist, who's utterly amazing. And we have a 50% master's level mental health counselor who uh, spends time with our vet students, but also uh, some on central campus as well uh, for her other portion of her time. We have, with the installation of Dr. Zach Ward as our primary counselor all those years ago, one of the things that was sort of talked about more is like mental health is a thing and mental th- mental health has to be equivalent to physical health and if mental health or physical health are not optimized the caregiver ps the veterinarian or the veterinary student can't be on their best game so that message was sort of created loud and clear when dr ward arrived as our counselor and 
we created the health and wellness club we created programs for our students we've created everything that allows for physical and mental health out of our career leadership and wellness center and it's just continually grown we were talking today with my team that the career leadership and wellness center actually sort of started as career with a little bit of leadership and a little bit of wellness but right now it's a lot of wellness and a little bit of leadership and a, a good smattering of career so we have extracurricular programs to help our students be successful that all relate to those three pillars and the biggest one being wellness and well-being is not like i said it's not just counseling for those in need but it is all of those other supportive structures the primary one reduction of stigma is is the thing that i think is minimized over time because we say mental health is important mental health is essential and if people have uh, appointment for their counselor it's just as important as if it was i'm going to see my physician because i broke my leg or i need physical therapy or a chiropractic adjustment or something so that message has been consistent and never changed and those potentially naysayers that would say oh you know someone quote unquote like that shouldn't be in healthcare. They shouldn't be in a veterinary profession. They need to have, you know, those people are, they're, they're no longer around. And those that might still have be around, they've been convinced that they understand the need. And then fast forward to the last three to five years where suicide in the veterinary profession has become much more I wouldn't say sensationalized, it's just been presented in the media to say this is happening and veterinarians are at risk, just like other healthcare professionals for having a higher than average, the general population suicide rate. And why is that? So lots of time to debate that one, but we've also put that on everyone's radar and said, just because you don't need mental health counseling or support, a lot of us do. And what you need to do is be an ally, understand that these things are needed, don't be part of the problem, and allow for the community to grow as a whole, because if we don't address these things, we're going to continually hear that suicide and veterinary medicine is on the rise, and we don't want to hear that, because every loss is palpable, because it's a small profession, and there's only two degrees of separation. So if someone successfully complete suicide, there's at least, if I don't know them, I know someone who knows them. It's really two degrees of separation. And so it hits the, the profession hard. So I think reducing stigma is the key. And that's been one of the first messages Dr. Ward put out there. And because of him, and it's on the student's mind. They come into veterinary school wanting to know our programs and how we support mental health of students. And we basically, don't even talk about stigma anymore because it's just like that's the way it is here we don't talk about stigma because there is none that is really insightful thank you i asked you about this because last time we spoke you mentioned that mental health is a focus at the davis vet school and after listening to melanie bowden's ted talk which i think anyone considering the veterinary field should give a listen to her points really give you something to think about and I guess what I'm asking is, what do you think is causing the main problem for mental health for veterinarians? No one knows exactly why veterinarians or physicians or nurse practitioners, like it's a healthcare related issue. Primarily, we might have a little higher rate of suicide compared to others, but the issues of imposter syndrome are high amongst health professionals. So I guess where I'm getting with this is mental health at the vet school, I'm assuming is targeted towards the vet student. And most of the people there, and I haven't talked to many of the veterinary students, but the people who I talk to in the animal science major, most of them say, I want to be a vet because I've always wanted to be a vet. I just love animals. That's what I usually hear. So I'm wondering, they love animals. They're coming here. Is it the stress that they're not good enough? Is it the way the curriculum is taught and could be changed to, to teach in a better way that reduces stress and benefit their health? Any thoughts there? Great questions. A team of my colleagues at the medical school and the nursing school are actually doing a lot of surveying of our students to find out where these things might be. 
Do they have imposter syndrome? Is there a level of belonging? Do they have a little bit of internal grit or resilience? Can they bend and not break? You know, those kind of things. So we're doing a lot of surveying and assessing the data to try to find out these things so that we can, once identified, create a program or an intervention at the right time so that we can nip it before it becomes a problem. And it's, you know, not one size fits all, but mental health is like going to the gap. There's some clothes you don't want. There's some things that don't fit. It might be the men's section and you need the women's section. Like there's no one size fits all, but there's clothes there and you want to be dressed. So when it comes to mental health, I don't know who needs what just yet. That's why our survey is really important that we've been watching our my class of 2023 that volunteers to fill out the survey for me every year. We've been watching them and we've been looking at this data and we've already got two publications out on it. We have two more in the bucket. So we're trying to figure those things out so that we can help intervene when an intervention is needed that might be as simple as a modification of the curriculum. It might be as complicated as a training module for our faculty members and how to fit that into their day. And if it's a whole weekend workshop of eight hours of things to teach them about how to deliver and improve mental health in the curriculum, well, that's a little bit more challenging. But yeah, if we need to do that, we will. So that's what our, our study is looking into. And I think that what we're doing, we're also comparing between the other health professions, with comparing the nurses and the physicians to the veterinarians and seeing how they are similar or how they are different. So stay tuned. That is super interesting. Thank you. So let's, let's get into some, another fun, fun question. What do you find most exciting, interesting about your work? That's different every day, 100%. Different every day. Never boring, different every day. Even if I'm on the clinic for, you know, 10 days straight, it's always different. It's different every hour, not just every day. You know, the animals and the people and the concerns and the things I'm teaching vary depending upon the audience in front of me right at the time. So switch that over to my like clinical research schedule. If I do some clinical research, I'm like, oh, geez, this is a fascinating problem in the clinic. I need to figure it out. Let's pull a team together and let's start answering this question in a thoughtful manner. That's always different every day. And that's also fascinating. And then in the administrative realm, since I'm also the Associate Dean of Admissions and Student Programs, Every day, the things I deal with are different. Sometimes it's related to the Career Leadership and Wellness Center. Sometimes I deal with admissions things. We just called our class of 2026 last Thursday. So our new class who starts in August just found out. And, you know, there's all this excitement and all the issues that are related to that. I'm doing, dealing with all day. So, you know, 100% different every day. I enjoy that. I'm, I thrive on not necessarily having a plan. I thrive on not having a schedule and I enjoy fixing things. So I'm in my perfect zone here in my current role. I love that you said the last part, which is I thrive on not having a schedule. I think this is maybe one of the first times I've heard a person in the academic world say something like that. Well, don't get me wrong. I have a schedule, but if something pops up as an emergency clinician, you know, my happy space is okay, I'm doing something. Oh, wait, I'm pulled off in a different direction because something else is more important. I got to go do that. Like my ability to triage things and put out the fire and then go right back to the other thing that I need to do. That's okay with me. That's how I operate. I totally understand that is not for everybody. I understand a lot of people want an agenda. They want a clear set of what's going to happen. They want to know that it's going to start and stop at a given time. Yeah, that's not me. So how did you know you wanted to become a veterinarian? <laughs> I know this answer. I've heard this story twice. For those who don't know, <laughs> Dr. Jandri is a great storyteller. So how did you know you wanted to become a veterinarian? And what is your veterinary journey? So I don't really know when the bug hit, but I was very young. And I remember when I was four, my family moved from the suburbs of Cleveland to a sort of an area that's a more rural to sort of a gentleman's farm outside of the city. And I grew up there from four on. That's all I really had knowledge of. And uh, lots of property, grabbed animals. My brother, six years older than me, was in 4-H and had chickens and geese and rabbits. And we had a little farm. So it was easy to have all these critters and 
a supportive family and people around that also were like-minded. So when I was going to go into 4-H, I also took up all the dove plus sheep, and then eventually had some pigs and eventually learned how to show beef cows, dairy cows, you know, you, you name it. I got the opportunity to do all that stuff through high school. And by that time I had already had the bug. I'm like, I'm going to be a vet. There was a vet that was a friend of ours who went to our church. He lived a half mile down the road. He was a veterinary ophthalmologist and I would classify him as my veterinary mentor. And I started working with him when I was 14. I got official duties when I was 16. And I worked with him until I was 25 when I left Ohio to move to California after vet school. Fantastic man, really told me clearly what the profession does and doesn't do for people. And that was my window into vet med. I really didn't have a general practitioner that was my go-to, like where did my dog and cat go and get a relationship with that veterinarian. That wasn't it. I mean, we took our animals to the local small animal practitioner, but I didn't do more than just saying, you know, I want to be a vet one day. I didn't go hang out with them and I didn't learn general medicine. I learned ophthalmology before going to vet school. So I went to Ohio State as a poultry science major. They had poultry, dairy, and animal sciences, uh, different majors at the time. Now they only have one animal science major. Everyone's lumped into the, uh, the others. That's how old I am. And I did poultry science because my brother was in a poultry science major before me. And then he did a master's in animal nutrition. And then I got into vet school and we were roommates for a little while, even though he was six years older, because I was starting undergrad and he was starting his master's. So it was kind of the guy who used to beat me up was now my roommate. <laughs> it's okay. We're good friends now. It's, that's, that's the life of a little brother, right? So that veterinary journey through undergrad and veterinary school at Ohio State was just so fun. Like I have the best memories of having not only, you know, the rigor of undergrad to make sure I got good grades to get into vet school. That was not too challenging. And I felt that was really fun. Got into vet school. That's a whole slap in the face and learn how to learn differently after like knowing how to maximize my grades in undergrad as well as high school, vet school, professional school, completely different way to think and learn and study. And it hit me hard. I was one of those people. I'm like, I'm normally getting A's and why did I get a C on this test? That's a bit of a shocker. So it slapped me in the face, but it taught me to grow and it was really pretty cool. So I guess I would say I may be one of the best resilient people. I bent, bent hard, but I didn't break. And I followed my interest in vet school and I wanted to be a veterinary ophthalmologist. So you have to specialize. So I needed an internship and a residency. So that's why I applied for my internships right out of vet school and landed in Los Angeles for my internship. And the rest is history and haven't really left California. <laughs> So what is your uh, advice for future vets in college? And what can someone do to boost their chances of being accepted to UC Davis vet? Well, two big part, two big questions, each got a big part. So hard. It's, it's currently a target. There's a current target to get into vet school at UC Davis. But that target does change over time and it changes based on our faculty's interest and response to different things that are going on in the community in the profession and within education so our current process as of right now how to maximize your chance to get into uc davis vet school get the best grades you possibly can get period <laughs> that doesn't matter if you're a performance at juilliard for trumpet or ballet or a genetics PhD, whatever program you're in, whatever school you're in, whatever thing you're driving at, whatever drives your passion, maximize your performance. So get good grades. Good grades are really important to our process. Then part B is the GRE. We still require the graduate records exam and maximize your ability to do well on the quantitative section, the graduate records exam. It's still there, it's still a barrier. We're currently undergoing a task force to see if it actually needs to stay or not stay for future admissions processes, but currently it stays. We're one of the few schools, I think we're one of seven or eight schools that still require the GRE for application to their veterinary school. One of the reasons we still require it is that we often have students interested in our DVM PhD program, the dual degree program, and the graduate school still requires the GRE for admission into the graduate school. So that's the next thing. The third part of the equation is letters of recommendation. 
have great letters of recommendation from anybody who knows you best. One of them should come from a veterinarian. In fact, we request that it does come from a veterinarian. But anybody else that knows you best, if it was a research mentor in undergrad, if it was your clergy at your religious location, if it was your guidance counselor in high school, or a health professions advising counselor on campus, whoever knows you best, write those great letters. Okay, that's the academics side of things. That's step one, that gets you the interview. Step two is at the interview, we have a select few that come for an interview. Currently, on average, we have 1,000 to 1,200 applicants. Some other schools have in excess of 2,500 applicants, and they use a very different process. But we whittle our caseload down, if you will, our 1,200 applicants down to 240 interviews. So how do you maximize the interview? Our interview is called the multiple mini interview. The multiple mini interview is currently 10 stations that are 10 minutes each, and you meet our faculty members for seven of those 10 minutes. Three minutes, you're prepping and you're looking at the scenario and thinking about it. And then my faculty ask you three questions during those seven minutes and you speak your truth on that subject, on that scenario, on that idea. And they vary. They vary and we're asking for things like, well, let's put it this way. You can't study for the multiple mini interview. Your preparation for the multiple mini interview is your life. How do I prepare my life for an interview? Well, let me just say you can't. <laughs> but what you can do is experience life and pay attention. What does that mean? Well, if you're a Starbucks barista or you're working at the Gap folding clothes and taking people's money when they go and purchase them, you need to be the best client customer service person you can be. If you are in a leadership role for a student club or youth group or some other situation that you're in and find yourself a leader, how do you maximize your experience? Listen to people, listen more than you talk, observe, see what makes people tick, think clearly about all sides of the equation. What's good about this? What's bad about this? If this hot topic debate you have one-sided information on it, you should check yourself and say, I need to find more about the other side of the debate so that I can critically think about all the options before I have my own opinion instead of just listening to one. So we look for the maturity in the person's answers and that maturity tends to be best from people who have lived the most and paid attention to the most people around them. And that's your preparation for the multiple mini interview. It's very clear for those who have extreme experience in life. And it could be hardships too. People who have hardships and overcome them, again, those who bend and not break, they snap back usually stronger. That's what resilience is. So they, they sail. They show that they are the highest performers on our multiple mini interviews. Because when you come to the interview, it doesn't matter what your academic input was, everyone's put on a level playing field and back down to zero. Your level is zero. We cancel every info input. You're at the interview. We start from square one, and then you are admitted based on the rank in your performance in multiple mini interview. So people say, well, how do I maximize my multiple mini interview? I'm like, just speak your truth. Be vulnerable and tell it like it is. So this is a question I think is really interesting. Why should someone not be a veterinarian? They don't like people. It's plain and simple. You don't like working with people? This is not your business. You think it's an animal business? That's funny. It's a people business with animals as the intermediary that's brought you together. So if you honestly don't like helping people, this is not a good place. You won't be happy. Honestly, you will not be happy. I would have to say that some people are, are mentored by veterinarians or other professionals that say you shouldn't go to vet school because the payoff is not worth it. You're not going to make as much as your human colleagues. You're not going to have as much blah, blah, blah. And I wouldn't do it if it was the way it is now with tuition, the way it costs, cost of living that's gone up in Davis. So it's hard because that's an expense. All these things are layered and a lot of people are saying you shouldn't go to vet school because you're not going to pay off your loans fast enough. And 
Well, I hear that, but I think that as a professional, you're going to make good money and you're going to pay off your debts. It's going to take a little bit longer now than it did 10 years or 20 years ago, for sure. It's going to take a longer period of time to pay off those debts. But what we hear all the time, people say, I want to go to vet school. I want to be a vet. It's my passion. It's my happy space. It's what I really want to do. I don't care about the debt because that's secondary. I care about doing what I love and doing what I will be fulfilled at. Well, that's fantastic. If you're going to love it, if you're going to be fulfilled at it, then do it. If you don't know if you're going to be fulfilled because you haven't experienced veterinary medicine on a fulfillment level, then, then think before you actually apply to vet school and go through the whole process. There's a lot of other related veterinary fields that aren't requiring a veterinary school DVM degree. There's lots of animal-related fields. There's a lot of other things you can be part of the veterinary industry, but not a veterinarian. There's technical services representatives that work for pet food companies and pharmaceutical companies, and they interact with veterinarians and deal with veterinary issues every day, but they're not veterinarians. So just because you don't go into be a veterinarian with a license doesn't mean that there's not opportunities for you to still have really cool things that go on with the veterinarian's life or veterinarian's work. So I would not let the debt scare you off, but it's a reality. But I don't usually accept that as a reason not to go in to veterinary medicine. If your heart's not in it, you don't think you're going to be fulfilled. And if you don't like people, those are, I think, three big reasons to not go into that med. One of the reasons we ask for 880 hours of veterinary experience before application is we want to know that you have experienced at least enough hours to understand and have walked in a veterinarian's shoes with him or her for 180 hours so that you understand at least that small aspect of veterinary medicine. But then again, when you get to vet school, especially the number one on the universe, right? We open up your eyes to hundreds of places that you never even knew veterinarians worked because it's not just a small animal practice on the corner of your suburban town. It's the world of veterinary medicine is exposed to you when you're here at UC Davis. So there might be a small place where people who don't like people can work in veterinary medicine with a veterinary degree, but that's hard to find. Healthcare in general and veterinary medicine specifically, you have to like people, you have to do it. Thank you. And I believe you've already begun to answer my last question, which is what advice do you give to students who do not get into vet school? Well, I mean, there's so many options. Like I said, paraprofessionals that also work in the veterinary industry, I think you can get a lot of excitement out of still working with and next to vets. But there's no reason to not continue to apply to get into vet school. There are many vet schools around and there's more vet schools opening all the time. In fact, this past month, they just announced there's going to be a new veterinary school in New Jersey. It's going to open in the near future. In Rowan University in the south of Jersey, it's only about 25, 30 miles from the University of Pennsylvania. So it's going to be a new school and it'll be interesting to how they come online and what they're going to do. But I think that'll be 32 or 33 vet schools now in the country. So there's other veterinary schools to go to. All of them have a different applications, applications requirements. The process in general is the same. It's the Veterinary Medicine Central Application Service. So VimCAS is where you put all your data in, all the schools get it distributed to them, and then you find the one that matches for you. Like I said, investigate the curricula find the curriculum that matches how you learn and how you want to learn, find the location you want to be in, or find the special areas that the school is known for. Like we don't do a lot of pork here in California. So if you want to really, really be a pork practitioner or like a government USDA type of governmental veterinarian who deals a lot with the swine industry, and this is not your best place to get your education. Well, we expose you to it, but we don't own it like they own it in Iowa State or Minnesota, where they have these huge pork industry programs. So it, it, you should also look for your vet school that matches your interests. Usually as the number one in the world, we have almost everything here as maximized as possible. But one thing I would say, we are not amazing at the pork industry. We support, but we don't, we don't have the world leaders in swine medicine. I would say you would need to find out why you didn't have the success at your application. 
what I described already is a pretty high bar. And if the bar here is too high, you either have to say, I'm gonna to go to a different place or I'm gonna maximize it and I'm gonna jump over that bar. So I'm gonna do better on the GRE. I'm gonna do better on my next set of courses. I'm gonna do a post-bac program. I'm gonna do a master's program. I'm gonna do a PhD program. Those kind of things can also add strength to your application. Also, it delays it. So here's the other thing. I wanna say, and I want it publicly known that there's nothing wrong with a gap year. And there's nothing wrong with two or three or four gap years. If you have done your rat race of education, and I'm calling it a rat race because it feels like you're just running with the pack and you don't know where the goal line is, but you hit graduation, maybe you don't get into vet school, I would look at this as an opportunity to live. Remember what I said about multiple mini interviews? You have to maximize your experiences in life to probably be able to sail comfortably through an MMI. So I don't look as a one-time application not selected as a failure. Turn that frown upside down and say, I look at that as an opportunity to do the things I need to continue to do to be a productive member of the society and find the fascination in everything that's around me and pay attention to it. I can find a job in the veterinary industry. I can go and work as I have been working in my degree. Maybe your degree is in bioinformatics. Maybe you're gonna work in bioinformatics for a while. You may not be fulfilled, but you're still gonna have your eye on vet med, but you're gonna go and get a lot of stuff done and do really, really well. I would suggest that take a gap year and enjoy the gap year, get off the rat race, enjoy living and, and experience life instead of experiencing education. Because you can't tell me you can be a full-time student and also be a full-time member of society and live. Your focus is different. So it would be really cool for you to take a break. And I think a gap year is fine. In fact, we've had a, we've had a lot of students go through their degree. In fact, these are some of my favorite students. Their parents are veterinarians. They grew up around veterinary medicine. And they say, yeah, no, I don't, don't want to be a vet. So they go and do some amazing thing. My favorite one actually was a very accomplished concert performer. Her special instrument was the trumpet. So she was in some of the best orchestras in the country, coveted positions in orchestra world. And uh, she applies to vet school and gets in after like eight years. I'm like, why are, you, why are you going to vet school now? She goes, yeah, it wasn't what I wanted to do then. But now reflecting on my current career, everything that my parents did in veterinary medicine, I actually love that. <laughs> so now I want to do it too. So um, really, really pretty fascinating. So she's graduated and is out there doing great stuff. So it's the people who often are second career students, meaning they've had their degree, didn't get into vet school or didn't pursue veterinary school right away. Then they went and lived and enjoyed whatever they did. And then they come back as an applicant, not at 23 or 22, but they come back at 27 or 30 and they crush it. They come in here, they have a new perspective, they're really focused, and it's really, really cool to see them still get out of vet school. Let's say they start at 30, they get out of vet school at 34. They're not even halfway into their career yet. Like they are going to have 30 years in veterinary medicine, at least. They're probably going to retire at 64, 65. That's still 30 years of career in veterinary medicine. That's a lot of good impact on the world. So you did one thing early and do vet medicine late. I don't know. It's better than doing veterinary medicine early and then leaving the profession in your mid 40s because you're burned out. So I would say this is a long answer to a very simple question. What do you do to improve your chances? Capitalize on your gap year or gap years because those are ways that you're going to really actually focus and find out what drives you. Great answers. Really enjoyed listening to them. And here's the last thing I have every guest do, which is anything you want to leave listeners with, last few words. I would say that the pandemic has taught me the power of separating work and life. Because early on, I think that 
you know, everything about my work had to go into overdrive. I had to do more clinics. I had to do more administrating. I had to consider, I tell you the truth, some of my clinical research did suffer, but I found that I love what I do and it supercharges me. In fact, I think it energizes me, but I do like to go home and leave it at work. I do like to just go home and in the pandemic, both my partner and I, we just started doing crazy stuff. He starts doing all these strange crafting things and now is quite accomplished. And I dug into a bunch of different websites and learned how to do all sorts of other cooking. So any of people who know me on Facebook, they watched my baking unfold. Like, I'm surprised I don't weigh 300 pounds now after I bake so much and couldn't give it away because there was no one to give it to because we were shut down in a pandemic. But don't forget that there's a lot of good stuff out there when it comes to how do I relax and get away from work or school. And my happy space is explore culinary skills, explore new cuisines, explore new cultures that you haven't dug yourself into and invest two or three hours making some great meal that you never would have had otherwise and enjoy the process. Because, uh, you know, it's only taking you 20 minutes to eat it but it's going to take you two hours or three hours to get it together. That I found has been really, really helpful for me during the last two years is just to really enjoy the process of discovering a new recipe, a new, a new chef and um, pushing my culinary skill. I mean, I love to eat. So I figure I got to cook well if I want to eat well. So that's what I would leave y'all with is there's a lot of life to be lived and live it through food because you can't travel right now <laughs> or travel is more difficult. So I've lived my travel through food. So I would recommend for those who are faint at heart in the kitchen, give it a try. Music to my ears. Thank you so much for being on this show. It was really great having you and we learned a lot. Well, great. I'm glad I can help. And if you need any drill down on another topic, I'm happy to come back. Thank you so much. 